episode 68 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Hi, my name is Sean Chuplis. I've been a professional pilot all my adult life. I've instructed in the military and civilian world and now fly for the airline. Aviation today's episode is sponsored by Cadence Aviation. Cadence Aviation makes premium headsets at a very reasonable price. If you want to check out their headsets, go ahead and check out the CA501 premium PNR pilot headset. You can check them out at cadenceaviation.com. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. First off, I want to start off by saying Oshkosh was amazing. Thank you so much for the guys and girls that came to the meetup, that wanted to meet up, that got some stickers, that we got to talk to each other. We got to kind of put some faces to the names that I've been messaging with and that we've been talking to, and it just was really cool to meet you guys, and it was awesome to, to see you, and I hope to do this again next year and for many years to come. If you were not at Oshkosh, I highly, highly, highly recommend you make an effort to go next year. Osh is just it's beyond words. You just can't explain it. It's something that you have to see for your own eyes, and I highly recommend that you do it next year. Hopefully, we'll do another meetup there as well. And if you didn't notice, for everyone that was at the meetup, the meetup was at Crew Dog Electronics. Crew Dog is started and owned by Sean Chuplis. Sean is who I'm interviewing today, so it's kind of crazy how that worked out. Sean was gracious enough to let me use his booth, and I'm very thankful for that. So this episode is about Sean. Sean has done some amazing things. He has gone to the Naval War College. He has flown a G4 in the military. He has been an instructor on the civilian and the military side. Sean has an amazing story and one that I'm just really excited for everyone to hear. Aviation, if you like today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot. And you can also check us out on Instagram at pilot the pilot as well. Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And without any further ado, here's Sean Chuplis. What is going on, Sean? Thanks for coming on the pilot the pilot podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm joining you from muggy New Orleans today. Ooh, is it? How's the weather other than muggy? Is there thunderstorms all around? Uh, f- funny you should ask. I, so I'm flying on an airline trip. Had a, uh, a new personal best of a, a five-hour delay because Ooh, of thunderstorms in New York. But there you go. Luckily, it's clear here. Just a little bit muggy, but not too bad. Gotta love thunderstorm season. Hopefully, it's on its way out and we can get the, some good summer flying in. But who knows? <laughs> been rough <laughs> well cool well hey i'm very thankful that you want to come on the podcast i'm excited to tell your story we were kind of talking before we recording about what you've done and kind of the type of flying you've done i think it's gonna be really interesting and people get a lot out of this episode thanks for having me happy to join you yeah no problem uh, let's start out how i start out every podcast what was the original inspiration for you to get into aviation so my original uh, inspiration to get into flying it was my 13th birthday and I was up in Newport, Rhode Island with my dad, um, and I'd always been interested in flying. And so for my birthday present, he got me a uh, like one of those adventure flights where you go up with an instructor for about 45 minutes and just kind of play around. And I've spent a lot of time instructing as well in aviation. It's, it's one of those things like it either bites you immediately or you decide this is not for you. And I definitely got bit immediately when I was 13, flying above, seeing people flying kites and all the mansions in Newport. And it just felt like I was defying the laws of physics and it was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. And I knew after then that I, I wanted to fly for a living if I could find a way to do it. What was uh, what was the next step in trying to figure out how to fly for a living? Did you go to your parents be like, hey, I want to be a pilot, like make this happen now? Or was it more of like a <laughs> delayed, like kind of like, all right, well, we'll see if you really want to do this because it's a big investment. Oh yeah, it's a big investment. Um, 
So I, after that, I started buying books on like ultralights and gliders, and I had this crazy idea that I was going to build a plane and, and fly it around. At 13. Um, <laughs> at, at 13, yeah. yeah. Like, I'm going to build a plane and uh, get up an ultralight. And, you know, that, that never came to fruition. Yeah. Um, so the easiest way for me to get in was to do the military. So I ended up uh, applying for ROTC, and I knew I wanted to fly around the world and, and see a bunch of different things. So I thought the military would be a good way to go. And also it, it sent me through college. So I did ROTC and went to ROTC and got a pilot slot out of there and started flying for the military at uh, 22. Oh, dang. If it wasn't yeah. for the military, do you think you would have still became a pilot or you would have gone down that route? Or do you think you would have done something else? I think I would have. I think it's, it's a little bit more challenging um, going the civilian route because the military it provides like a very structured path to go through. You go through pilot training, you go to a, a weapon system after that, and you become a, a captain and instructor. And it's, it's very regimented. And I, I have a lot of respect for people that do it the civilian route, taking <laughs> on all this You kind of have to choose your own adventure. There's yeah. no like set path and you have to take on a bunch of debt. And it's, I think it's a lot more, uh, I guess difficult to do it that way. What was your, your path as a military pilot? So kind of give a quick, like a, uh history about how you even become a pilot in the military. Like you said, you become a captain, you go through training, like what planes did you start training in? Cause I know a lot of times they'll have you start maybe in a 172, but then you're kicked right into, I know this is probably the Navy. They do like a, you get put in a T six relatively early, like at like 50 hours or something. And you're trying to figure out how to fly a T six. No, that's exactly true. So at least when I joined, what they did is they put you through your private pilot's license. So I started in a 172 with a civilian instructor and you get somewhere between 40 and 50 hours and you get your private pilot's license. And then immediately after that, you go to pilot training. So they have a few pilot training bases around the country. Mine was in beautiful Del Rio, Texas. Oh which my is, gosh. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> so you go there and it's really trial by fire. Um, you get, you get some ground instruction and you get some simulations and trainers, but you're in the aircraft relatively quickly and you solo relatively early. So most yeah. of the people that flash out, it's during those first 10 or 20 hours where they, they're just not able to keep up with the fire hose yeah. um, and, and training to solo. Yeah. We, we had a few people that dropped out in my class just cause it's, it's a lot very quickly and you, you very, and plus you have the added heat stress of I was doing it in summer in Del Rio and you're wearing a helmet and a G suit and it's, you know, just terribly hot. Um, so a lot of people would end up getting sick or, or motion sickness because of that. So go through the T6 and after that, everybody track selects. So you're either mm-hmm. going to fly fighters or you're going to fly heavy jets. And I ended up uh, selecting for heavies. So the heavies go to T1, which is a, a beach craft. Mm-hmm. So kind of like a, little business jet you fly that and then after that you get put into uh they call like a major weapon system so you go to your your main aircraft for the the cargo people it's either going to be like a c-17 a c-5 or for me it was a kc-10 which is a air-to-air refueler Mm -hmm. and so we could do cargo and also refueling so our mission was usually to either go to the desert and refuel planes that were uh conducting operations in iraq or afghanistan so we'd circle above them they'd go drop bombs, come up to us, refuel, and go back and do it again. <laughs> or the other other thing we did, which is actually my favorite mission, we would call them coronets. And what they're doing is, so they're constantly rotating fighters from the deployed location back to their home bases in the United States. Mm-hmm. So we put a package of anywhere from like six to 18 fighters. They would fly with us along the ocean, kind of on our wing, coming up and getting fuel, and we'd take them all the way out to the desert. So that That's was crazy. a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it's 
because as the, the lead aircraft, you're actually conducting this operation of multiple streams of aircraft. So there might be three or four tankers behind you, each with another set of six fighters in your <laughs> fuel planning, which is birds, weather. It's a very dynamic mission, but that was, that was a lot of fun. And I got to see the world doing that. How much fuel does a tanker have? So like, say you're fully loaded, getting ready to take off. Like how much fuel do you have? Can I even comprehend the amount that you have in that airplane? It's for the, the KC-10, 380,000 pounds of fuel, which oh is... Oh my gosh. Because that's actually the, the weight of a KC-135. We could hold that just in fuel. It's, it's mind-blowing. That's your zero fuel weight is 300. <laughs> that's crazy. That's, that's what we could take, yeah, just in fuel, 380,000 pounds of fuel. Which, so we, yeah. could, we could go direct from... I think my longest flight was... You could go from the United States all the way over to... All the way to the desert, like Abu Dhabi. How long did like that a, take for you to get there? Uh, it was about a fourteen-hour flight. Oh, no big uh, deal. You know? Fourteen hours, yeah, yeah whatever. No yeah, <laughs> watching Netflix, you know, no big deal. Just kidding. Oh yeah. <laughs> how many times would you guys actually be able to refuel? Like, how many? How many planes is three hundred thousand pounds of fuel for you to refuel to make sure you still have enough to get to where you need to go? We would usually do it in segments because actually the limiting factor wasn't fuel. It's usually just kind of the crew day of the pilots because. We're sitting, we have a, a four-man crew, we've got mm-hmm. two pilots, we can get up, walk around, go to the bathroom, but these poor guys stuck in their F-16, oh. you know, wearing their piddle packs and everything else, it's, <laughs> it gets pretty uncomfortable staring at an aircraft for six hours while the sun's over there, and so actually the limiting factor would be their, their kind of crew day, okay. so we would usually stop places along the way, there's some islands in the Atlantic, like Lodges, um, in the Azores, and some other places, and we'd usually stop so it wasn't too rough on those guys. Or you stop for like five minutes so they can get out, shake their legs, maybe do some push-ups and <laughs> get back in? No, we actually stop and they'd get a day or two off. Oh, good. Kind of relax and everything, and then we'd, we'd go and do it again. So we'd, we usually break it up into two or three um, kind of segments. Could you imagine being in a fighter jet for that long? Like that would be for 14 hours, like if you just constantly refueled, that would be awful. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's It was rough. And we, just to keep the guys alert, we would just kind of, play games on the radio, like maybe Trivial Pursuit or something, just to keep everybody <laughs> talking, because it's, I imagine for them, it could be very boring yeah. just staring at a craft in a formation position for hours and hours and hours. I can only imagine. So that was your favorite part, was kind of going, kind of seeing the world and going from uh, America over to the Middle East? Yeah, that was my favorite part. I think for me, I grew up in a really small town, and being able to see the world was my appeal to aviation, just kind of my ticket to go anywhere. So I enjoyed doing that, traveling. I got to go to some really interesting places. I've been to Mongolia, oh, wow. Vietnam, a lot of places in Southeast Asia, and places that you can only get to if you're in the military, like Wake Island, Guadalupe, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some of those strange little atolls out in the Pacific. Only military aircraft go there. <laughs> you can get there other ways, but you probably don't want to be, <laughs> be landing there. <laughs> 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 Very bad. true. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Who would you say was kind of like an inspiration for you when you were starting your training and starting flying? Was it kind of like a family member at all, or was it all kind of like just your your own idea? Like, hey, I want to be a pilot. It was actually I was the first one in my family to fly, and also the first one in the military. Mm-hmm. And one of my my actually my big inspirations was my first instructor pilot. So her name was Mona, um, and she was also a KC ten pilot. And she just hooked me very early with these stories of her uh, going around the world, seeing all these different places and, and running these missions and, and also the people that she worked with. So the KC-10, I liked it because we always had a, a crew with us. And so we go to somewhere, say we're in Sevilla, Spain. Mm-hmm. You've got your own little crew together and you're, you're there. And it's kind of like, you know, as a 20-something in, in charge of these 
missions around the world and a, a crew of like up to 10 people. It's just, it felt very empowering to, to have these people with me and we're like exploring the world and every mission kind of felt like an adventure to me. <laughs> I feel so bad for you guys hanging out in Sevilla, Spain. <laughs> I'm sure it's not like hanging out on the, I don't even know where Sevilla, Spain is, if it's in the beach or what, but I just like, you can just imagine you guys just like chilling, not doing anything, but I appreciate your service. and I know it wasn't all that easy hanging out on the beach, drinking Mai Tais. So thank you for serving. We appreciate that. Talk a little bit about, um, so first one in your family, but also first one to go into the military. How did like convincing your parents that you want to be a pilot is one thing, but how do you convince them and tell them, Hey, I'm also going to join the military to do this. Like, were they kind of like hesitant about the military or were they more hesitant about you being a pilot? Uh, I would say a little bit more about the military, but I joined pre September 11th and it was a very different world. then. (laughs) I thought I was going to be joining doing peacekeeping operations, um, and just kind of going around the world, helping America, yeah. you know, make the world a better place. And then I, I very, remember very vividly September 11th happening. I was in uniform that day, uh, doing ROTC things and people were just coming up to me asking, Hey, what's going on? Is, is America under attack? Um, and my world definitely changed yeah. drastically that day. It was, um, so it's, I mean, people don't really know what their military career is going to look like. And it became very different for me after September 11th. And a a big majority of my time was spent deployed Iraq, Afghanistan doing combat operations over there. Um, So yeah, I guess I didn't know what I was getting into (laughs) exactly (laughs) at that time, but you never know the world's a crazy place. You never know. And you're like, can I, uh, do I really have to do this? Like, I just want to be a pilot, help people out. It's like, I got to go. Yep. (laughs) Uh, that's that's definitely something uh, that not everyone can yeah in that time it was completely different like you said like there's always what was in 96 there's always like threats of war and stuff like that with korea but there was really like nothing going on until 9-11 at least from what i know i was also nine or 11 years old when 9-11 happened so i wasn't really the the smartest kid in the world (laughs) (laughs) well i didn't know too much about the world but the only things really going on i mean we had some things in bosnia and Mm -hmm. it was just like very minor operations and nothing really big had happened in the, the military it was kind of a, a down draw and people were getting out and the budgets were shrinking so that it wasn't, I don't know, there, there wasn't much going on. Yeah. What was, uh, so now you kind of, let's transition a little bit to being um, out of the military. What was that like? What was it like, like finally getting out of the military, joining kind of the civilian world? Was it, because I mean, I've heard that it can be hard for some people because there's so much structure and you know, there's like so many things that you know you need to do. But now that you're out, you're kind of on your own and you kind of make your own path. Like, was that difficult for you or was that pretty easy? That was actually, it was exceedingly difficult for yeah. me. It's um, it's kind of strange. You, you, you kind of, your whole identity revolves around this one thing that you do and that you, yeah. this thing that you've trained your entire life to do. So I, I remember that first day where I was off active duty and I hung up my flight suit and I'm just like, what? who am I and then what am I doing? It was, it was very hard to find a sense of purpose again after that. Um, and I've actually never totally gotten out of the military. I'll, I've always been in some form of government service. So I still do the reserves now. And the things that I like about civilian world um, is because you do have your freedom. I mean, while I was in the military, I missed pretty much every holiday. I miss being best man at, at multiple weddings and just all the, I can never really plan for any events. Cause I was, I was gone, deployed, or doing missions somewhere between 250 and 300 days a year. So it was just very difficult to do anything real life-wise. But that was the downside. But the upside was you kind of had your family. I mean, I I know to this day I could call anyone that I served with 
back in the Air Force and say, hey, man, I need, I need somewhere to crash for two weeks. And they would be absolutely, we would, yeah. even though we haven't seen each other in years, we would pick up again. And, and it's really, you have a really strong sense of camaraderie. Yeah. Um, so that's the part I loved about it. And then I feel now in the civilian world, that's kind of lost because I'm, I'm flying for a major airline. I, I very rarely see the same captains, the same flight crew. And so you kind of, you do have your freedom and your autonomy, but it's not that sense of shared purpose and kind of shared mission. So right. that, that was very hard for me. Yeah, I bet. But I found myself uh, being drawn back into aviation. I, I, I tried to get out for a little bit. I, I went to school, got my MBA. Oh, no way. Uh, yeah, because I got out in uh, 2012, and there weren't <laughs> I could get a job flying. Yeah, it's like, welcome to the real world. No one's hiring. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yep, welcome to the real world. You're no longer getting a steady yeah. paycheck. Uh, You're not needed, up. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, I had a couple of business startups and then I, I did reserve duty, but that really wasn't enough to keep me sustained, you know, as a full-time job. Um, but I did fi- eventually find my way back into aviation and I, it's definitely where my passion is and I, I love being connected to the community and I love all the stories from the different pilots because I think it's a certain type of personality that is drawn to being becoming a pilot. It's like that adventurous spirit, someone who wants to kind of push the edge a little bit, see what's over the horizon and just even the, the people that I fly with in the airline, they all have very interesting and varied stories. I've, I've met former uh, people that have worked in, in government, um, a lot of business owners, test pilots, uh, people that worked at NASA. It's just, it's really amazing all the things that people have done. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just even just the people I've talked to and the stories that they have. Because I mean, I've interviewed, I think, I've had published maybe 61 episodes as of now and it's everyone has a different story. Everyone does something different and it's just so cool to hear. And I feel like that's what can be so inspiring about this is that you don't know how inspiring your story can be until you actually say it. And then some kid out there is like, man, that's exactly what I want to do. And it's like, well, I had no idea someone <laughs> wanted to, to go fly a champ over the ocean 200 miles out to go help people spot fish. It's like, who knew that that was even an option, which is just crazy. But like, there's so much yep. there, that there's so much to flying that's more than just flying. And I, I think it's so cool when pilots have a side gig or a side hustle because we do have some extra time on our hands and it's good to be more productive as my wife told me two years ago to do something with my life (laughs) outside of flying so it's really interesting to talk with people and just kind of hear their story so that's cool to hear that you kind of you went out and you stepped out and you got your MBA and you had some business startups and stuff like that yeah it's it's been an adventure for sure and that's something people in the aviation industry have told me as long as you can keep this something that you do for fun it's never going to feel like just a job to you. So I, I do have other businesses that I do. And when I show up to work, I am genuinely excited to fly and happy to be there. And that's that sort of attitude is very infectious, especially when you're flying with a crew. Yeah, I, that's how you bring up a good point. What would you say, because flying gets to a point everyone faces this point where it feels like a job. You know, you're like, you do it too much. You, you accidentally pick up too many trips or you volunteer for one day, too extra. And you're like, dang, this sucks. Like how do you maintain kind of your sanity in that moment? And how do you kind of, uh, to bring back that love for aviation? I think it's good to step away sometimes. So I'm very big proponent of taking little breaks, you know, going on vacations, traveling. I just got back from a month in New Zealand in April and I didn't fly for the month of April. Jeez. And just being away from it a little bit, I think you can't really realize what a thing is until you step away and then come back. And I, I genuinely missed flying. I missed being out. I missed going, doing things and, and, you know, being in the cockpit. And yeah, so I think my, my breaks from aviation have really made me realize that it was something that I missed. And even more so for that, uh, 
my time as a CFI and just taking new people that have never flown before and mm-hmm. seeing that ear to ear smile on their face when they have that first flight or their first solo, like it, rem- it makes you remember why you flew or why you fell in love with flying to begin with. Yeah. And that was, I think the most empowering thing for me because it's one thing to do things yourself, but to see or to teach someone else and see that enjoyment on them on their faces again, it kind of brings you back to that moment where you, you first felt that way. Oh, for sure. Tell me more about being a CFI. Did you do this after you got out of the military? Was it kind of something like a placeholder for a job when you, the airlines weren't hiring and kind of in 2012? Yeah. So, um, my career path, I did reserve aviation and I was flying for the Navy reserves out in Hawaii. Sweet. Um, but I took a year out and I actually worked for the, um, worked in DC and I had kind of like a desk job where I didn't fly for a year. <laughs> How was so that? It, <laughs> uh, it was, you know what? It was good because yeah. I wore a suit to work every day. I drove on the beltway nine to five and I had the stability. I had weekends, but I was not happy. Uh, I, I would find myself on my days off going to Leesburg airport, taking my friends up flying. And <laughs> a couple of my friends were like, Hey, you could do this for a living. Why are you here? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> Leave now. What are you doing? <laughs> that's funny. I, you know, I sort of mulled over that question. I'm like, yeah, well that's, that's a good point. Um, but no, I instructed in the military and that was actually my, my favorite job in the military was being a flight instructor in the oh, KC 10. Cool. Cause I got to teach people to do, I mean, these people had come through pilot training. They knew how to fly, fly the KC-10, but I got to teach them to do air refueling, how to run these missions around the world. And I, I really love teaching. And that's something that I've found that I'm I'm pretty good at. And I, it's been the most rewarding for me is <laughs> helping other people learn and, and you know, kind of sharing that joy with them. Yeah. So that was to bring that and come back. And I had to become a CFI to kind of get recurrent um, and get some more hours to be competitive for the airlines. But I really enjoyed it. I think Hawaii has been the the most beautiful place that I've ever flown. You have every island is very different. The scenery there is just I've it's mind blowing. So flying a a little you know Cessna 172 over the the sea cliffs of Molokai and having lunch on the lanai. It's just it was totally amazing. <laughs> Making um, so me I, jealous, I really man. My, oh yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> so you instructed civilian pilots and military pilots in? Or yes, just, absolutely. Okay. I did. I started out as a military instructor and then I did civilian uh, CFI work after that. And it was a pretty easy transition. What was tougher? Was it tougher to teach someone how to air air refuel in a KC-10 or is it tougher to teach a civilian how to land for the first time? I think it's actually harder to do military instruction because I was already dealing with people who had a, who knew how to fly and I would have to change habits or kind of mold them a little bit. And I think it's easier to give someone good habits from the beginning and sort of shape them from day one yeah. than it is to try and correct bad habits. Absolutely. Because as you know, being an instructor and as I know of being taught the bad way the first time, it's hard to, to, to relearn. It's hard to kind of get away from what you were taught and what has worked for you in the past. It's Maybe it's not necessarily a bad way, but you could do it a little more efficiently or a little better. And I'm sure that you have some experience with kind of training the bad habits out of people. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it is, it is definitely harder to get rid of bad habits. And plus I think from the civilian side, I was people that were there to show up to fly were because they wanted to be there. They weren't necessarily, it wasn't their job. They were, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
it was a different attitude, um, but it was definitely easier. Yeah, teaching people kind of off the street. Yeah, I bet. Well, I don't actually. I don't know because I'm not a CFI, so I'm gonna tell you. I bet. But <laughs> it, it's tough work. <laughs> yeah, no CFI. It's just it never appealed to me, and I mean, I think that's okay. Like, I feel like it's okay for you to realize that you're not going to be the best CFI. Which I mean, I might have been a good CFI, but I just knew that I wouldn't have been able to give it my all, and I knew that I'd just sort of use it as a, a time builder, and I wouldn't have really fully put my all into it. And I don't, I think I would have been doing more of a disservice to the future of aviation. Cause I don't think that I would have been, I mean, I might've, but I don't think that I would have been really like really focused on teaching them how to fly. I just when it's in there, like, all right, let's go do stalls for an hour. And then like, kind of go back and it's like, all right, well, I need one more, I need 355 more hours before I fly to the airlines, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's really responsible of you to have that realization. In the military, they have uh, these assignments, they called first assignment instructor pilots. And mm-hmm. these are people that went through pilot training and then instead of going to a, a weapon system like a aircraft, they got assigned right back to flight instructing again. Oh. And that wasn't always a voluntary choice. And I've, I've come across a few who were in the situation where they, they just got assigned there and their heart wasn't in it. And it's mm-hmm. really, there's no way but for the students to kind of realize that. So flight instructing isn't for everybody. And no. I, it is something that takes everything out of you. And if your heart is not in it, you're right. It is kind of doing a disservice to the students if you're just there to build time. Yeah, for sure. Because like at the end of the day, I'm responsible for this student learning how to fly. And I want him or her to have the best instructor they can possibly have. And I don't want it to be some guy or some lady that's just there to build time. And they don't really truly care about that student. And I feel, I, I really wish that there was a better way. I know flight instructors are getting paid more now, but I wish that somehow there's a better way to keep the good instructors as instructors. You know, like we have like the very select few that stay instructors for life and I'm sure they can make a pretty good career, but I feel like they're so important to our industry that there should be a way where they can make really, really good money, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think more of a national systemic problem. Teachers are absolutely super highly valued (laughs) in our society, but I guess from my my point of view, they do kind of come full circle. So I'm in an airline and we do have instructors in the airline too, that work at the simulators and that do flight checks. And they tend to be people who were CFIs earlier on in their life or did some sort of military instruction. So they do end up coming back to it, you know, later on down right. the down the career path. That is true. All right. So let's go, uh, you're CFI in Hawaii. You're teaching civilians how to fly. What is kind of, so they're getting ready to take their private pilot check ride. There's a lot of People that listen to this podcast are in that same situation. They're getting ready to take that check ride. What is a recommendation that you give your students that seem to calm them down, that like got them ready for the check ride? <laughs> yeah, amazingly enough, calming down is a very difficult thing. Yeah. Um, that's so a big deal, man. Their first check ride, like oh, yeah. that's like a, <laughs> you know, like that's a freak out moment. Oh yeah. So actually, um, when I was going through flight instruction, the KC10, learning how to air or refuel. I mean, you can talk someone onto it, but at the end of the day, being in like you're you're about 15 feet from this other airplane, connected, sometimes in a turn, sometimes at day, sometimes at night, sometimes in some weather, you can actually see the boom operator, the person that's connecting to you. You mm-hmm. can see their face. They, <laughs> you can see hand motions. So it's a very scary experience for some people, and there's <laughs> not a whole lot you can do as an instructor to really like talk about the mechanics of it. At the end of the day, you're kind of the cheerleader, like you're, you're encouraging them. So I remember one of my early instructors, I, I had, um, obviously a little bit of a uh, nervousness first time I did it. And he said, he started singing to me. <laughs> I'll never forget <laughs> this. He's like, Hey man, you need a, you need a refueling song. That's just going to get your mind off it. And you just got to sing this song. We'll go your fingers, we'll go your toes. Um, and he started singing <laughs> Otis Redding sitting at the dock of the bay. 
<laughs> and <laughs> it was just the most bizarre thing to me. But I'm just like listening to it. He's like, all right, man, just sing it with me. And I was singing this song, hooked up to this other aircraft, getting fuel. Um, so yeah, that's something actually I would encourage for students. It's just have a, something that you can kind of go back to in your mind, like a, a little song or just like a little saying, and just kind of repeat that to kind of bring you back down to baseline, you know, reduce your heartbeat a little bit, just calm down a little bit. Um, so yeah, error refueling, the, the key to error refueling is, is having a silly song. That's to hilarious. I can just imagine a student like getting nervous on a check ride, like doing power on stalls and they just start <laughs> singing a song and the examiner's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, oh, my instructor told me to sing a song. Just go with it. <laughs> That's really funny. No, I mean, that works. So it kind of gets your mind off what you're thinking about. Cause I feel like a lot of mistakes that happen to students or anyone taking a check ride is you overthink it. You know, it's like once you yep. get to the point of being in the check ride, you've already done the hardest part of your flying. Like, you've proven to your instructor that you can do everything. And it's just another flight with a brand new person. And that's just like what that's just so scary that it's do or die right then or there. So if you can find a way to stop thinking about that, then you, you, I don't want to say you'll pass for sure, but like nine or eight out of 10, you'll be good to go. Cause everyone makes mistakes. Like everyone has a bad day. And it's, it's not about making this mistakes. It's what you do after the mistake. Because you can make almost any mistake in a check ride. It's pretty much what you do after that. And does that little mistake like the the little error that you saw in your flight planning that maybe the examiner didn't even see. Are mm-hmm. you going to wrap your mind around that and go down this rabbit hole? Or are you going to recover gracefully from that mistake and have a good check ride afterwards? Right. And that's, that's, that makes all the difference. Yeah, it does. It's tough. And <laughs> yeah, everyone, yep. <laughs> the hardest thing for me is I'd like to explain stuff too much. And then they're like, no, you're going to talk yourself in the rabbit hole. And they're just like, oh yeah. So tell me about this. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, well this is, and they're like, nope, <laughs> just stop. Answer the question. Don't give them any more than what they asked. It's like, just tell them exactly yep. the answer to the question you're asking. I was like, all right, cool. But I had to catch myself so many times like, oh, well, I should say, nope, nope, shut up, Justin. <laughs> you're going to <Yep>. fail. <laughs> so yeah, yep. that's true. <laughs> What, um, so let's kind of transition a little more going more into your career. So you became a CFI to build more time for the airlines. Did what was next? What was, uh, was it straight into a major airline? Did you fly regional? Did you fly corporate? Like how did you, uh, get the major airline job you have now? So I could have done corporate or I could have gone to regional. Um, but I was really enjoying living in Hawaii. I had the reserve job there Mm -hmm. and I wanted to kind of stay there a little bit do the time. And I actually, I was fortunate. I got hired directly into a major airline. And I think that was due to some of my military experience. And the fact that I was, I went back to be a CFI after being an instructor in the military. And a lot of people, I don't, I don't know, like you, like you said, it's very hard work and not mm-hmm. a lot of people in the military go back and do that. Cause it's like something people see is, you know, that's what you do earlier on in your career. So I think I got some, some brownie points for doing that, but yeah, I got hired right on to a major airline. Um, and then I started training with them and uh, went on to fly the uh, Airbus 320. And I've been flying that for about three years now. And I've really enjoyed my time at the airlines. I did take a year off uh, during my second year. And I went to Naval War College for the the Navy, which is um, the school up in Newport, Rhode Island. It's mm-hmm. where a lot of the people that are going to go into be admirals or heads of foreign navies go to. And you studied national security. Uh, I studied things about drone warfare basically every major war from Athens and Sparta up to current day. Oh, uh, it was cool. a very good program. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was a great way to kind of break up my airline career and kind of going back to what I talked about. You don't realize how much you love something until you step away for a little bit. It was great to have that, that break during my second year of my airline career and come back to it again, you know, just recently. Yeah. I have two questions for that. What was the airline like when they're like, Hey, I want to take a year off. I've only been here two years, but yeah, give me that year off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Were they pretty cool with it? 
Well, so funny enough, there's a, a federal law called USERA, which protects people in reserve duty. So when you have reserve orders to go back, the airline or actually any employer, they can't really say, hey, no, we're not cool with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to bring you back with all the benefits and everything you would have had during that year off because otherwise no one would go to the reserves. And a right. large portion of, re- of our reserve flying force is has an airline job or some other job and they need that protection. So no, the airline was very supportive. Uh, it was actually just an online form I filled out. And when I came back, they were, they were great. And they're like, Hey, thanks for, you know, doing your duty to your country for a year. And they, they welcomed me back. Welcome it was, it was back. very yeah. process. Yes. <laughs> oh, by the way, you passed a new contract. Here's a raise. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yep. Yep. That, that all happened as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> so when you came back, were you, so you did it your second year. So you would have had a gap between your third and or your third year would have been the gap, right? Or was it a second uh, year was a gap? Okay. So when you came back, was your seniority the same place that you were? Like, did you get second year pay or did you still, was it like you were there the whole time and you got, came back to third year pay? Yeah, it was, it was as if I never left. So I came oh, back cool. to your pay. And not only that, you, you come back and you get to anything that would have happened while you're gone. So base transfers and, you know, uh, aircraft upgrades, you're entitled to that as well. So I actually got to switch bases to a place I wanted to live. Um, <laughs> and I got, yeah, everything else I would have entitled to. It's like I never left. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, uh, that's uh, not a bad program to have. <laughs> yeah, I'm very and- and then my second question is, what was the reason to go to the War College? Was it, uh, did you want to be an admiral or did you just want to do it for fun? I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. Um, uh, I love learning and I'm infinitely curious about the world and I'm always willing to learn things. Uh, the program was amazing. It's, uh, I feel very fortunate. They only selected five reservists out of the country to oh, attend wow. residents. No big deal. Um, so I was very fortunate. <laughs> yeah, no big yeah. deal. But no, I mean, all these people, I, I love the international experience. I mean, I, I had uh, classmates from Jamaica, from Norway, all around the world. And the education was amazing. It's um, a lot of the professors would also teach at MIT and Harvard, oh, uh, as well as teaching at the Naval War College. So the education was great. And I really enjoyed some of the electives. So um, I wrote my my thesis paper on artificial intelligence and drone warfare and how I saw that kind of changing the way we execute operations. Uh, and I was really interesting to me to do that drone warfare class because we had briefings from DARPA. We had briefings from the Navy about all the new toys that were coming out. Um, and not only that, I really enjoyed how they, they looked at leadership from like an inward perspective. So one of my electives, we did the Myers-Briggs, we did Hogan. Oh my gosh, my a, wife is going to love this. She <laughs> wants me to take every personality test that is possibly out there. So the fact that you're talking about this is just going to, she's going to freak out. <laughs> it's To me, it's really refreshing that the uh, military realize this because when you get into leadership, it's not really like how good of a pilot you are, how good of a, whatever technical skill you have. It's really how you are able to connect with people and lead people. So it's your emotional intelligence that's mm-hmm. really important when you get up to that level. And the military is finally trying to, you know, they're starting to realize this, hey, we can't have these kind of gruff, like, yes, people that just want to get it done and can't connect with people because that's not effective leadership. Right. Um, so one of the electives I took was all about that. You know, we talked about meditation. We talked about journalism or, or journaling. And we, we it was funny to see these really um, kind of like old, crusty Marine gunnery sergeants 
you know, taking an emotional intelligence test and seeing how the, they didn't even score anything on the empathy scale. They're like, how is this possible? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that make them a, uh, a sociopath? If they don't have any empathy. Isn't that like one of the things? <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting there somewhere yeah. on that spectrum. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the military culture. You just say yes, you go uh, get it done. If something's wrong, you don't talk about it. There is no, it's not a touchy-feely kind of business. But I, I think the military's slowly coming around and realizing that those those skill sets are very important. And we, we can't have this person who is not connected to people coming all the way up through the ranks and being a general because that's not an effective way to, to lead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, yeah, you can't just be a yes man. You got to have someone that's there that is there for the right reasons and has an opinion, whether that opinion is a bad opinion or a good opinion. Sometimes it's good to throw out separate opinions and kind of be like, well, you know what? I never thought about that. Maybe that is a good idea. And that's the same thing in the cockpit. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that is changing. There was a, uh, I forget who wrote it. I think it was the Wall Street Journal just came out with a hit with a, with a story about how there's been a very big kind of disconnect between the older generation of pilots and the younger generation of the pilots and how it's causing some unsafe situations. And I haven't had a chance to fully read it yet, but I thought it was very interesting kind of here just because I mean, older and young, like we're different. We, we think differently. We value things differently. We might have a different approach to how we do stuff. How have you seen at your major airline kind of the difference in age and the difference in kind of just having a safe program, but having two different people in the cockpit, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. And actually, my company fully recognized that. We had a, a full day where we sat down because all the airlines are hiring like mad right now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of new people coming up. And we've got this older generation. The captains tend to be, you know, 50s, you know, early 60s. And it is a big generational gap. And, and not only how we think, but how we communicate. So they had a full day class where we sat down. We talked about some differences in the generations and how we might be able to better communicate. But it's kind of like, you know, as a younger generation, I might be helping the captain with the iPad or how to do some other technology stuff. Um, and the captain's got this, you know, these decades of experience in the airline and they might be a little bit more old school. They might print out their schedule, whereas I have it just screenshotted on my iPad. I feel like I'm a little <laughs> bit more trusting of technology than they That's are. Hilarious. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily good from one perspective or the other, because the technology does go wrong sometimes. Yeah. And it's, I think at my airline, it's great. They they really promote a culture of, hey, if it's a nice day, turn off all the stuff, like fly the aircraft and don't just rely on all these automated systems to go and do it for you because some days that those systems break or you never know and it's going to happen at the most inopportune yeah, time. Absolutely. But I, I think it was really nice of the company to go ahead and set a time aside a class and to just talk about some of the generational traits and, you know, the differences between us um, and how to kind of communicate and work better together. But it seems to be working out. And I think now, um, especially in the airlines, they've taken more of a kind of a mentorship mm-hmm. role and they've, they've really encouraged the, the more senior people, the captains to mentor the younger generation coming through because that is the the future of the airline community. And uh, there's going to be more and more young people coming through. And if you're not going to teach these people and take the time, because at the end of the day, mentoring somebody takes a lot of effort and it, yeah. it really, you have to care because it's a lot easier to just sit there, fly your trip, say nothing, be like, yeah, do you have anything <laughs> for me? No, great. Like, yeah. It's just, that's easy, but it, it takes no effort. Yeah. Um, and it does take a little bit more effort to talk about things and, and, you know, say what could have gone better. And I've, I've been fortunate. I've had some great mentors in the airline as well. And I've, I've really appreciated it. Yeah. Mentors are huge. And it, going back to what you're talking about, how you just take a screenshot of your, uh, of your schedule, we have flight releases and it's a by paper, but 
I, uh-huh. being the millennial I am, I just keep it on my phone. I don't need anything. And like the the the, gener- the generation gap between me and my captain, they're just like they can't function without that one piece of paper that has a release. I'm like, no, dude. It's like we don't need 35 pages to take off out of this one little airport. It's like it's like how do you write it down? It's like I type it in my phone. Like I get the clearance on my phone, or we have a yelly, or we have a post-it note. It's like I'll just write it on that. <laughs> they just like yep. can't function without that piece of paper. Like no, I, I, I want to print it out. And it's like all right, that's cool. That works <laughs> either way. But. It's just funny. It's just uh, it's a complete different way of thinking. And it's one of those things that that's how they've always done it. So why should they change, you know? Right. And it is changing slowly. And I think I was kind of unfortunate. My, um, my generation's called the Oregon Trail generation. So <laughs> that's a very unfortunate between... name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But I mean, yeah. like when I was going through grade school, like the internet really didn't become a thing until I was in high school. So I've, I've lived the world without cell phones, without always being online, without social media. And then through college and after that, I, it was, that's when it became a thing. And so I understand the technology, but I also yeah. remember what it's like to be disconnected from it, which I think is a good thing because a lot of people are just too tied to their technology and too reliant on it. And it just, it sucks up all of their attention. Oh, without a doubt. And I came up when I was growing up, dial up was just starting when I was in, let's see, like probably elementary school. So like I, I'm like riding the edge of that, like really entitled, like need information right now, but I still kind of understand how long it took to get it. And it wasn't, it was so new that no one, (laughs) like I still would rather go play outside or play like my Sega Genesis, not the Xbox or play Minecraft and stuff like that. But I think that, Yeah, it's just everything happens so quick and everything happens now and I get the information right now. And I think that's just like instant gratification has totally kind of screwed up our whole culture and screwed up kind of the the younger people that are coming up, especially coming in aviation, because what they see on Instagram and they see on Facebook and social media is these major airline pilots. But they don't understand how aviation is such a, a career of delayed gratification and it takes so long to get that kind of dream job or to get that job at a major airline, then they, they, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around that and see like, Oh, I really don't want to go to Ameriflight to fly single pilot IFR for 2000 hours to get hired by them, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I feel like that little disconnect and the, the delayed gratification versus instant gratification is, is huge right now. It is. And that's, that is one thing I, I love about flying is the cell phone gets turned off for, you know, those, those three hours that I'm on my trip. And that's <laughs> like, I break from the world and I am just immediate. It's just uh, me and- the, the crew and the aircraft and nothing else is there. And it's, it is nice to unplug sometimes. Yeah, I know it definitely is. You're definitely right. And uh, as Wi-Fi gets better, pilots will probably start buying the Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, but no, it's true. Um, but yeah, enough about that. Let's, there's more to your story I want to talk about. And I know briefly we talked about, you kind of do some side stuff with ADSB, don't you? Yeah. Um, so after I got into the airlines, um, I was teaching in Hawaii and I was flying around the islands in a little Cessna 172. And obviously having the weather is a really good thing to know when you're flying around <laughs> islands a single bit. engine. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so ADSB was just starting to become a thing. And my Navy squadron had purchased an ADSB receiver. Um, and I wanted to have one for me personally, just flying, doing CFI work. So a friend of mine who's a pilot and also a computer programmer on the side, because we all have side gigs. Oh, and, yeah. you know, being a, <laughs> course because being a you know just a cfi does not always pay the bills um, but he's like hey man have you heard of this uh, project where you can get a raspberry pi and you can build your own adsb receiver um and my undergrad was computer science so i could kind of figure my way through it and i, I built one and it worked and it worked great and then as soon as i built one three buddies in the squadron were like hey man can you build one for us and <laughs> this one 
And so me being the uh, entrepreneur that I am, already having a few businesses, I'm like, hey, this is a business opportunity. Yeah. And so I, I started a company, CureDog Electronics, and I started building these ADSB receivers and selling them on Amazon. And really for me, it was kind of, um, I, think, I think more of a thing because of my principles. So I think that ADSB is something that helps us fly safer, having weather, traffic, uh, all that. I know that that changed my flying world when I was in Hawaii, having that situational awareness. And to me, that's a that's a public resource. That's ADSB is broadcast by the FAA, and I think it should be in the hands of every pilot. So, like this is kind of like a labor of love for me. You know, like I'm an airline pilot, I could do that, and that could just keep me happy career wise. But this is my way of kind of connecting with the aviation community, and I feel like I get to help people fly a little bit safer, and I get to talk to pilots every day and <laughs> uh, meet them at Oshkosh too. So I'll be yeah. going to Oshkosh this oh, year cool. for the second time. And yeah, and so that's kind of my way of giving back to the aviation community a little bit, staying in touch. And then I feel like also through this, I get to make some videos, instruction on how to how to do different things with the receiver. And so I'm, I feel like I'm teaching in a different medium as well. That's cool. So when you're flying with your captain, like, do you have like a uh, flight picked out? Where you're like, all right, we've been together for two days. I'm going to pull out this Raspberry Pi. But like, hey, let me introduce <laughs> you to the Raspberry Pi. Would you like to buy one? <laughs> you got an elevator pitch for me. <laughs> uh, so I just came out with a, a red LED pen that... Yeah. Um, and, you know, right at the, it's got an LED light on the front. It's got a stylus that hooks in your iPad. Um, so I, I talked to him about it. The captains are pretty impressed because a lot of them have side businesses as well. And, yeah. and they think it's cool that, uh, actually one of the, the ones I flew with a couple trips ago, I also make LED lights for like a PAR 36 LED light for, you know, general uh, GA aircraft. He's uh -huh. like, oh, I'm in the market for a couple of them. So it's just another conversation breaker because not everyone in the airlines has any connection to GA or maybe they did a long time ago and right. they don't even and so I find it's a way for me to connect with them if they also, a surprising number of them have aircraft of their own or or still teach. Um, so it's a way for us to talk about GA and talk about other things rather than just that airline trip. Yeah, or everyone has a buddy in aviation too. You know, like, well, I don't fly 172s anymore, but my my buddy Carl does. It's like, go ahead and uh, call Carl and give him some, <laughs> you know? So it's, uh, yeah. everyone has connections and it's, the elevator pitch is probably huge because you don't know who you could who you could possibly impact with your product. Yeah, absolutely. And then aviation is such a small world too. So yeah. it's, I've been surprised at the connections I've found just talking about different stuff. Yeah. Uh, so what you're, uh, you're also, your other pitch should be, Hey, have you listened to the pilot, the pilot podcast before? <laughs> <laughs> Here, let me put it on for you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, yeah, a funny. lot of the podcast listeners, uh, I was on the airline pilot guy as well. And I got to connect yeah. with him on one of his layovers and he's also an airline pilot and oh, he's cool. talking about, you know, just, the, the kind of this, the same troubles of airline flying, but also just this connection, this kind of uh, camaraderie that all the pilots have. And it's just an instant, you know, connect with people and, and talk about it. Yeah. I think he actually meets up with some of his listeners on some of his different layovers. Oh, really? That's awesome. That it's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if I knew where I was going to be with a company I'm at now, it's like, <laughs> all right, so here's your brief for today. And then 20 minutes later, be like, all right, we're changing that. Now you're going to Hawaii, not Hawaii. Now you're going to Bermuda. And then 30 minutes later, all right, now you're going to Austin, Texas. It's like, uh, I don't know how to keep up with this. <laughs> it's uh, very much uncontrolled chaos. But if you learn to love it, yep. it's uh, it's not a bad gig at all. <laughs> That's that's the thing. You got to love coming to work and uh, it just can't become too much of a job. Yeah, for sure. Which is hard sometimes, like we talked about earlier. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, I have a, a section called the rapid fire section. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask you very simple aviation questions. And you have to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. What's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? Gulfstream 4. What's your least favorite airplane you've ever flown? 
Ooh, Cessna 152. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Small little airplane. <laughs> well, not only small little airplane, but in Hawaii, lots of corrosion, uh, uh, a little bit too old. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What is the what is the most beautiful plane you've ever seen? Uh, most beautiful plane I've ever seen. I would say... Hmm... KC-10. KC-10, I still, that, that puts a big smile on my face every time. And it's funny that the name, the nickname for it was Big Sexy. And that's, Oh, there you go. Very fitting. <laughs> yes. They're being replaced by 7.6s, right? They are. Yeah, yeah. They're, uh, they're phasing them out. Um, but yeah, that was my, my first major aircraft. And that's always going to be the, the one I remember. And uh, yeah, that was my first big welcome into aviation, I feel like. <laughs> that's awesome. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Ugliest airplane I've ever seen. Hmm. Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a lot of people pissed off about this. I, I think the 737, <laughs> like the, the, the <laughs> positions where they keep stretching it out, like it yeah. doesn't look natural. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's like why is that still a 737? <laughs> yeah, why is it? It's just it's a Frankenstein. Yeah. I know it's unpopular right now, but yeah, that's really funny. That looks ugly and unnatural. I don't think you'll get much hate for that. I think that's a, a very common common thing for someone to say. So I think that people might agree <laughs> with you more. <laughs> they're just afraid to admit it because they either fly it or they know some of the flies or they're constantly on it. Right. And even the cockpit design, there's just like, there's things sticking out everywhere. It's just, it's not a elegant design. No. I would say. What is your favorite airport food to get in between flights? Ooh, favorite airport food. Oh, I like getting, uh, so there's a great place in Denver behind the Chick-fil-A. They have these wonderful, uh, organic salads with chicken and peanut sauce. Um, so I get a chicken salad is my favorite one. It's it's kind of hard to get something green sometimes on yeah. trips. So anytime I can get a nice salad, I, I take advantage of it. You messed up, man. You have to go to Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is the only airport food that someone should have. <laughs> it's behind the Chick-fil-A. Yeah, that's not good enough. Chick-fil-A or bust, man. <laughs> All right, here's another one. What is your favorite airport you've ever landed at? Um, you yourself piloting the plane so it can be like wherever your favorite landing was okay that's easy uh wake island so wake island is out in the middle of pacific and it it looks like a runway with a it's like this little atoll that you know circle with a bay in the middle and it just looks bizarre it's like how is there a runway here out in the middle of the ocean (laughs) very beautiful place if you could fly any airplane and make major airline money, what plane would it be? So it could be like a 172 for fun. It could be a, a turboprop. It could be a 787. What would be the one airplane you'd want to fly? Uh, so I went to Oshkosh last year and they Cirrus at their booth had the new single engine uh, jet plane they have. Yeah, the Vision that Jet. Looked, oh yeah, that looked beautiful. That was like a, a Cadillac with a jet engine strapped to the back. I think I would, <laughs> <laughs> I would do that one. There you go. That's not bad. That's a good option. Uh, let's see. What else do I got? What's your least favorite airport you've ever landed at? Uh, well, I was actually landing there uh, last night around 1 a.m. Uh, <laughs> Newark is, man, Newark is, it's a, it's a beast. It, yeah. You've got all the, all the congestion from the Northeast corridor. Um, it's, there's always weather there, especially in the summer. Newark is definitely, it's a little rough. Yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite airports and that's a little sarcasm is not too far from Newark and corporate aviation should know it very well. It is uh, Teterboro. Oh, Teterboro. (laughs) Yeah. Good old Teterboro. And, uh, we are very much dictated by where to take off and where to land by what Newark is doing because if we're too high, 1500 feet or else we're going to get hit by a heavy airplane. (laughs) 
Yep. Yeah. I've over Tito World more times than I can count. Yeah, I bet. New York, Newark and the Newark area is a hot mess sometimes. We went from, uh, we had last time we had a flight from Teterboro to uh, the Hamptons, and it was the West Hamptons. We had two RAs in the same ex- in the same flight. It was crazy. Oh. It's just like there, there's almost too much traffic for the amount of controllers that they have there. There are, and those guys have a rough job. Yeah. And that being said, when I'm when I'm flying in there like on a weekend and it's evening and there's no one there and we're just flying, you know, up the Hudson along the city, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. But during major traffic hours, which seems to be every other time, it's it it can be a beast. Yeah, for sure, I would agree. If you could um, fly over any kind of scenery, what would it be? Would it be an ocean, the beaches, mountains, kind of the flyover states? What do you love most? I love it's. Uh, to Hawaii, like the west, the west side of Molokai, they have these beautiful sea cliffs. I love flying over those where there's just there's enough. The clouds are high enough where you can still do some VFR flying, but you can see the rain coming down off the sea cliffs. It's I think the most beautiful thing I've ever seen flying. Going up the west side of Molokai, there's all these little uh, canyons and valleys, waterfalls coming down. It's just absolutely amazing. So I, I love the sea with the mountains and and waterfalls. And I guess that's a very specific place, but it does exist <laughs> that's for good. other places yeah. in the world too. Yeah, it's only there. That's the only place. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last one will be, what is something you always have to have on you while you're flying? So it could be like, for me, it'd be sunglasses. I'm like physically useless without sunglasses. I, I have an issue where I can't see very well. It just, I'm constantly squinting. So me, it has to be sunglasses, but what would it be for you? I always have sunglasses and it, it's funny. The other thing that, um, the, the captains are like a little bit they're like, why do you have this? I have a, a gel highlighter. So, uh, <laughs> when we get, we get a cars printouts and it has things like our, you know, the ATIS and our takeoff performance. And I like using this little gel highlighter to highlight lines. And I'm very good at my co-pilot origami, you know, these things folded up in neat little squares. So yeah, the sunglasses and having that gel highlighter so I can keep everything in order. Cause I think, being a pilot, a lot of it is just controlling the chaos. And so if you can control that part of your chaos, everything else will go much better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would agree. I would recommend it. All right. Gel highlighter. We'll look into that. Oh yeah. <laughs> Gotta get one. That's all. Are you going to sell it with crew dog electronics? Are you going to put like a little led light on it and sell it? You know, that, that could be the next thing. I'll put there an led go. light, a stylus and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it'll, it'll give you traffic alerts too. A flash, a flashlight too. So it'd be perfect. Yeah, traffic yeah. alerts, ADSB, <laughs> ADSB highlighter. The future is now. <laughs> there it is. Well, Sean, you have officially survived the pilot, the pilot podcast. I only have one more question for you. And if uh, after this question, you have more you want to talk about, we can for sure dig in. But it is, uh, there's a lot of people that want to be a pilot. You went the military route. You've also seen the civilian world. I know there's no best way to become a pilot, but what would you recommend to someone that is interested in the military, but also interested in just doing civilian? Would you tell them to go the, the military route to become a pilot, or would you just tell them to do only civilian? I would tell them if you're interested in flying, like I said earlier in the podcast, the only way you're going to know is just to do it. So just if you think you might like it, get up and do a discovery flight at your local flight school and see if you get caught by the the bug. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll know immediately if, if flying is for you. And if you want to do it, I mean, there is the military route. There there are some different requirements with medical and things like that. And actually, I was just talking to a former student of mine who just got hired by Hawaiian a couple of weeks ago. And I, I remember flying with him, man, like in 2014, and I was helping him do his commercial uh, check ride. And he was trying very hard to get into the guard unit. And it just you know, you have to be at the right place at the right time. And it's not necessarily just you, it's timing. And he never ended up getting into a a reserve unit, but he had a very cush uh, job. He was doing contracting work. Um, He ended up quitting that to go 
fly for regional because flying was his passion. So I would say if you know flying is what you want to do, don't get discouraged because you think that one set path is the best way. You think that the military is the best way you're going to do it. And if you don't get in, that's it. You're just not going to do it. If that's something you're really passionate about, there's always a way to do it. Even if that means having a, a normal nine to five career and just flying on the weekends for fun and being able to share that with your friends and family, there's always a way to do it. Absolutely. I would agree. And that's part of the uh, importance of knowing if this career is right for you is kind of going with the flow. It's like, you're going to have this set plan. It's like, I'm going to be a CFI. I'm going to go to regional at 1500 hours. I'm going to get hired by a major after I sit there and flow through there directly in five years. And by the end of your career, I can guarantee you something will pop up in the way and you just have to go with the flow. It's like, just go with, if someone offers you a better job than you have now and I find a Gulfstream or a G650, take it. It's like, you're not yep. going to regret it. It's like, just go for it. And it's Absolutely. whether it's furloughs or whether it's just something doesn't work out right. It's like, there's always going to be something that comes up in aviation. Right now, we're in probably one of the best times of aviation that we've ever had, arguably. And it's not going to stay like this forever. You know, there's there's going to be another hiccup. There's going to be something else. And just just go with the flow. It's the only thing you can do. And it's the only way that you can keep your sanity. Yep. This is definitely an adventure. It's not about getting to a goal or having on one set path. I, I mean, my favorite time of my flying career was uh, being a CFI in Hawaii. And I, it's, you know, definitely the, the smallest paying time, but that was the best flying I ever had. So yeah. if you're not enjoying yourself along the way and you're just focused on this one goal, you're really going to miss out on the best parts of flying, which is just being in the cockpit and doing what you truly love. And yeah. yeah. You have to be along for the ride and be able to be flexible and just enjoy it. Yeah, I totally agree. And John, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and I appreciate you telling your story. It's like I said earlier, I think that your story is going to be one that can resonate with people. You've done so much. <laughs> you've done it. You've done a lot. You've done a lot of cool things. And I love kind of like the side hustle I have with Crew Dog Electronics. So go ahead and tell people where they can find you. They can find your website. If you have any social media, go ahead and link it here and just uh, do a little promo for yourself. Sure. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate you having me. Like you said, you don't really realize your story until you kind of tell it. So me getting into this business and connecting with other pilots and and seeing like, hey, I have touched a lot of the world, <laughs> kind of the corporate world, military world and civilian. It's been great. And the biggest energy I get out of this is connecting with other people and feeling like I'm part of the aviation community and, and giving back to it. So if you're interested in learning more about Crew Dog Electronics, the website is crewdogelectronics.com. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Twitter, the YouTube channel, and you can just type in uh, Crew Dog Electronics on Amazon as well. That's the, the big place I sell. Um, I'll be at Oshkosh this year. I'm giving a couple presentations. One of them will be on uh, my transition from military to civilian. So for any young up-and-coming pilots that want to talk about that, I'll be there talking about that. I'll also be talking about ADSB receivers. Um, feel free to come fly, uh, find me. I'll be in the fly market. We'll have a booth there with uh, hopefully a couple pilots from Hawaii. Um, so yeah, I, I'd love to connect with some people and I'm always happy to talk about flying and you can uh, connect with me through the website as well if you want to get in touch and you've got any questions. Perfect. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you coming on. We can debrief a little bit after, but uh, thanks again and hope you have a great day. All right. Thanks, you too. Thanks for having me. No problem. And that is a wrap for episode number 58 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Aviation, thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again for everyone that came out to the Oshkosh meetup and came out to Osh. It was a great time meeting you guys. And like I said earlier today, if you like the podcast, please leave us a review. The reviews mean so much to me. I learn a lot from the reviews. If it's a good review or a bad review, I take them both in and I figure out what I can do to improve the podcast. With that said, if you have any criticism, please email me, pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. I love learning and I love creating the best product for everyone out there. Aviation, as always, happy flying.